Bob, I'm looking forward to reading that um, piece. I'm not sure what he'll say, but it just deals so directly with what I've been working on for the last year or two, so I'm actually looking forward to it. But anyway, it's good to see you all. Um, let me just say a word here about what we're doing and where we're going because I'm a little bit concerned. I'm feeling more and more like a talk show host, and I'm not comfortable with that feeling at all. At all. This is not what we started out to do. Fred, that's on your shoulders. Um, Fred and Francis. Um, but, but, I'm, but, I'm, but I'm glad for it, generally. It's a testy... I think you. I think all of you know how much I love that guy, even though I find it hard to say it to him in person. But Francis and Fred put put this out there, and I was genuinely grateful. It's it 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 puts us all at risk because it it gets us away from literature for a moment. Um, risky times. So I'm glad to go there tonight. We're gonna take a look at um, one of the questions on that list, and then what I'd like to do is is go to. C.S. Lewis's essay on the humanitarian theory of justice, and if we if we can relate it to abolition, we can start there. But for the next couple of weeks, we will be dealing with um, Lewis in um, what he's written on this subject about mercy and love and justice. I I don't know what you know about Lewis, Pope um, John Paul, and and I don't know if Benedict, but I know I think it was John Paul who had um, nothing but praise for C.S. Lewis. He's not Catholic. He wasn't Catholic when he wrote. Um, but he underwent a, <clears throat> a serious conversion in his life. He was baptized Christian, but became agnostic um, over the course of his life and his studies. <clears throat> and then he encountered people like um, Tolkien and others in the, the group of Inklings that used to meet at I can't remember if it was Cambridge or Oxford, and and he converted, and he went on to become one of the great Christian apologists for the 20th century. Just a very, very remarkable man. He's had a um, tremendous influence on me. I've got a couple of arguments with him. Um, I, I don't know that they'll come out tonight, but um, maybe they will. Um, he's a man whom I love. I also have words with him about him. Yeah. Um, um, but he's he's helped shape my mind and strengthen my faith. So um, anyway, we'll get to him. But we will spend the next couple of weeks on Lewis. Um, the focus of our the focus of our time will be on um, abolition of man. Um, I hope we'll get to um, the um, to it tonight. Uh, we, we may get stuck on the humanitarian theory of, of punishment, I'm not sure, but anyway, that's what we'll do. As soon as we're finished with Lewis, we're going to return to our readings. We're going to pick up Aeschylus, the Oresti, the trilogy, um, and I'm really glad for the timing on this. I, uh, these, I'm a little bit amazed at what's going on with our timing, you know, Fred and Francis' suggestion, because this question about mercy and justice is so central to all the works that we've been doing. Um, I think it was particularly relevant in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov and in Billy Budd. You know, what, um, what happened with Billy and what happened with Veer. 
um, was good, goes directly to that question. And, and in all of those works, we're dealing with very, very painful decisions for people um, that affect their lives. Um, the trial of Demetrius in Brothers and the trial of Billy and uh, Billy Bud. So, and just before that, we had read um, Murder in the Cathedral, you know, about a martyrdom. And this whole question of justice and God's justice and how deeply we can see into God's justice. Um, one of the great gifts the poets have been giving us is seeing more deeply into these matters, getting us off the surfaces so we don't just make these agenda judgments we make. Um, and and on, along those lines, we, we cannot, we cannot bring to our readings these agendas. We have to learn to see them on their own terms. Can we let go of our agendas, whatever beliefs we have, to see what's going on in those works themselves? So the works we've been reading for the last several months have gone directly to very deep, deep questions um, that have to do with our faith. So I'm, I'm grateful for the work we're doing. And I'm grateful to you guys for the ways in which you're all staying with this. So, anyway, we will we will go back to e we will, we will go back to beginnings. We will, we will read Aeschylus's Oresteia, and what we're going to find there is something very very violent, very violent. Modern psychologists would look at it as pathological. You know, a son killing his mother, um, the Furies going after him. Athena, a, a goddess of wisdom, um, going at it with Apollo, um, the, god, the god of light. And out of all of those conflicts will come this extraordinary city. We will not find anything like that anywhere in the world, not in India, not in China, not in Africa, not in Asia. Something happened in, um, in the Mediterranean in Greece and later in Rome and eventually in Jerusalem that that produced Western civilization. So there's a, a lot we've been doing. Um, so anyway, in a couple of weeks we will get back to our readings. Meanwhile, I've got to try to fill in <laughs> as, as, as a talk host and see what we can do with this. Um, so let's Let's start. Um, any, any prayer requests? I want to get back to that. That anybody's come. I've turned it. It's gone. It's good, Doug. Um, I want to get back to that. Um, anybody who's comfortable making a prayer request, and in keeping with what we did um, before the coronavirus hit, if anybody's not comfortable naming people, write Suzanne and me. You know, name people that you might not be comfortable naming online, and we would be glad to include them in our prayers, um, even if they take a general form online. But any prayer request? Okay, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, what do we say, Lord? God. God. Daily, you offer yourself to us in the Mass. 
um, goes so directly to Boethius, you know, this question of anamnesis, that we're called to go back to pick up something in memory, but make it a part of our lives now to actually participate in. As Catholics, we don't believe we're just commemorating something. Um, you invite us to participate in your death. So you ask us to take part in a self-sacrifice, a self-immolation, to die to ourselves, to learn to put ourselves away. Never easy. In order to love the way you do. Um, every Mass, every Mass you invite us to reenact that moment, to participate with you in the trust that we will get better at offering ourselves to bring your mercy to every act of justice we're involved in. For your words to us this morning, um, your call to be better, for the life that you offer that we carry inside of us, um, thank you, Lord. Um, what a great gift. For the work that we're doing together in the class, what a good class. Amazing, amazing that everybody would stay with us as um, that we've done this work together for so long. Um, help us to enter into the works that we read, particularly those parts that are painful, that always don't square with the way we think things should be. But we enter into our human nature. The Iliad, killings, war, the Aeneid, Dante, a trip through hell. Um, Chaucer in a pilgrimage, Eliot in a martyrdom, um, all of it, all of it. Um, for all the ways um, these people have helped us enter into our human life more fully, more concretely, for all that we've learned, for any strength that they give us, um, we are grateful. Help us to stay open to what we're doing Increase in us the spirit of humility so that we can learn to put ourselves away. That means that means from you to suffer to suffer those who who oppose you. Um, to still love um, and bring you no matter what goes on in the world, all of your truth, all of your love, all of your justice, all of your mercy. That's our call. Um, let all of us be strengthened in what we're doing together so that we can do that more completely. Thank you for our um, work together and for our time now together, um, all that we'll do ahead of us tonight. We offer these prayers, um, and I offer them myself knowing that all of us carry burdens that um, very often we're not aware of. I ask for special prayers for two of our sons our oldest son, Thomas, and Christopher for burdens. Even though she didn't ask, I hope she pardons me. I offer a special prayer for Tracy for the burden she's taking on. Um, she's here because she loves this stuff, and she's meeting a hardship and bringing it to her world. Bless that woman um, in whatever struggles she's taking on. Let it be so for all of us in the work that we're doing with you. We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Tracy, I hope you will pardon me. I didn't ask you for that, but...
Okay, let's finish up the knowns of Auden. If you could all pick up that poem, I want, I'd like to do the last part of it. And once again, try to do it briefly, even though we're spending more time on the poetry because it demands a lot. It's not an easy poem, okay? Okay. Bless you all for being here. Mm, bless you all. Okay. <clears throat> Remember, um, the poem has gone through various stages, um, corresponding to the prayers of the monastic life. Morning, mid-morning, noon, uh, mid-afternoon, it'll go on through the evening. We ended last night in the knowns, which was the um, prayer mid-afternoon that corresponded to the time when Christ was crucified. So implicitly in the poem, even though it corresponds to the canonical hours, the hours of the monastery, it also corresponds to the stages of Christ's um, um, actions during his last day on earth leading up to his crucifixion before he came back. So it began in the morning with this sense of a innocence to our consciousness and immediately it took us into our fallen nature. You remember that in the prime um, we become aware that when we step into the world we step into a fallen world. Um, that first one finishes this ready flesh my honest equal but my accomplice now my assassin to be and my name stands for my historical share of care for a lying self-made city. Afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. So immediately we're confronted with a paradox that we've been dealing with from the beginning. The city is our effort to create a world in which we're self-sufficient. We don't need God. It's a, cosmo it's a cosmos. Um, we, we create it in pride to show how self-sufficient we are, that we're like God. It's a quality we get from him. We're made in his image, but it's created in our separation from him. So it's ironic. It's a double-edged sword. We make this great world, but it conceals these faults. There are all these deep ironies that we have to live with. In the terse... Um, um, member describes the judge and the hangman and everybody going out but all of them related united by their common concern with this victim that somebody's going to be executed the judge will have a hand in it the executioner will have a hand in it even the poet because he will write it and that's going to bear on what's being said in the knowns the section we're going to look at tonight <clears throat> There will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus. Um, everybody will go through this day wanting that day to be good. <laughs> it's, it's one of those sort of laughable things we say to ourselves when we start the day and say, I hope this will be a good day. Or everybody we meet will say, have a good day. <laughs> uh, we want the day to go without event. Um, but that, the, that section ends. Uh, for once there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Chthonian mutters. But no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. So now we learn that this is Good Friday. It happens to be the day that we celebrate, commemorate Christ's death. In the sex we met those 
um, different groups of people. And remember the last one was the crowd. And in it, there were all those, I thought, beautifully ironic lines. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see. And epiphany of that which does whatever is done. We act like we're free. You know, we have our free will to do what we want. But the crowd distinguishes itself because it does whatever is done. It's like it goes along with whatever the will is then. Whatever that is. Few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. It's the one thing that gets people out of their isolation um, into something else. The irony is, is that while the crowd is a good thing, it, it helps people escape their isolation. And as he said, it's the one condition in which men can be brothers to each other. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are our brothers. Superior because of that to the social exoskeletons. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second stop work on their provincial cities? There's that image again. To worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying. And nowhere up to this point has Auden mentioned who it is that's being executed. <clears throat> the knowns begins, you remember from last week, what we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, shamans, you know, all these people in the trances, in fact comes to pass. That a, that a god who is immortal, invulnerable, invincible um, we put to death so something impossible to consider I think it's one of the reasons people have such a hard time believing in Christianity how could a God who's immortal die it's absurd <clears throat> why he shouted or what so loudly in the sunshine this morning you remember the, the public goes away as all challenged would reply, it was a monster with one red eye, a crowd that saw him die, not I. That their way of dealing, because think about it, you know, at the moment that Christ was executed, how many people in the crowd, how many people in Athens, in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, anywhere in the world, who, who knew that what was going on at that moment was that we were putting... God to death on a cross. Um, how many? And yet, that moment defined history. Whatever mysteries um, that made up a part of our life before that moment opened up to us, that, that Christ revealed so many of the mysteries up to that time that had been hidden. So we carry it with us. That was the way it was left Remember, after the event, there's that the beautiful lines: the Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna, of, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the yellow dam. Turn their kind faces from us and our projects. The extraordinary power of those lines. If anybody would have had a right to be angry at people, it would have been Mary. We killed her son. We killed her son. 
um, but she's the image of our approach to Christ. What she images in herself is this gentleness and this infinite love that she obviously got from Christ to bring this gentleness and kindness to the world in face of its monstrous horrors. We murdered a god. She still turns her face to us in all of these almost funny ways. Green woodpecker, fig trees, yellow dam. She's associated with the most ordinary things, but what she, what she does um, is she, the Madonna turn their kind faces from us and our projects under construction look only in one direction because we go on. And remember, I mean, this is her son. This is her son. She turns her case, kind face from us who go on with our work as if nothing had happened. So we'll continue to be angry. We'll continue to blame. We will, we will continue to make scapegoats. Because remember, that's one of the central images of this poem. That what we do in our daily life is make scapegoats of each other. We keep blaming. We keep accusing. We find fault. Because that's our way of um, maintaining our superiority, our righteousness over other people. Mary turns her kind faces <coughs> away from us. <coughs> this mutilated flesh, our victim, explains too nakedly, too well, the spell of the asparagus gardens, the aim of our chalk pit games, stamps, birds' eggs, are not the same behind the wonder of towpaths and sunken lanes, <coughs> behind the rapture on the spiral stair. Doc and I were talking about this today, and she was reminded of Elliot, because remember in Ash Wednesday, Elliot describes the staircase. It's an allusion to Dante, because remember in the Purgatorio, Dante and Virgil keep ascending stairways from one ledge to another. It's the purgatorial action. It's the efforts that we make to purge ourselves. We shall always, we shall always now be aware of the deed into which they lead, under the mock chase and the mock capture. We go through life pursuing things. We keep thinking we attain them. But every one of them has as their end, Christ crucified, Christ risen. The pain, the panting, and the laughter be, uh, be listening for the cry and stillness to follow after because what's just happened is that Christ was crucified. It's Good Fridays. Wherever the sun shines, brooks run, books are written, there will also be this death. It's very much like um, T.S. Eliot's um, The Journey of the Magi. I've read that poem to you. I, I, my recommendation is all of you pick it up again. Go into, your, you know, go into the poetry collection we have and look it up. It's, it's very short. Um, but it's interesting to see how close in mind and spirit Auden and Elliot are at this point. Okay, that's where we were. Let me pick up. I'm just going to read the rest of the knowns and co um, comment briefly on it, and then we'll, we'll go to our discussions tonight. <clears throat> so, the rest of the knowns. The third hour of the day. It's, mm -hmm. it's the... Um, this is the hour that Christ was crucified and what we're left with afterwards. Okay? So this event has taken place. Now it's a part of our lives. It's the ninth hour. So? Three o'clock. Three o'clock, yeah. The, the ninth, ninth hour. hour. 
three o'clock in the afternoon. Soon, soon, cool Tremontana will stir the leaves. Tremontana is an alien wind. It's off the mountain. It comes from outside, so it's a strange wind. Soon, cool Tremontana will stir the leaves. The shops will reopen at four. The empty blue bus in the empty pink square fill up and depart. Things will go on. We have time to misrepresent, excuse, deny, mystify, use this event, mythify, use this event, while under a hotel bed in prison, down wrong turnings, its meaning waits for our lives sooner than we would choose. Bread will melt, water will burn, and the great quell, the great quell begin. Abaddon set up his triple gallows at our seven gates, that Belial make our wives waltz naked. Meanwhile, it would be best to go home, if we have a home, in any case, good to rest. All of the, um, those, um, Abaddon is one of the dark gods of the Old Testament, and also um, the name um, has an elusive power. It refers to the pit or the darkness into which we descend from our sins. <clears throat> Fat Belio make our wives waltz naked. Meanwhile, it would be best to go home if we have a home. In any case, good duress. So, <laughs> the crucifixion is taking place. We do what we do. We want the day to be like any other. After our labors, we want to go home and relax. That our dreaming wills may seem to escape this dead calm, wander instead on knife edges, on black and white squares, across moss, bays, velvet, boards, over cracks and hillocks, in mazes of string and penitent cones, down granite ramps and deep passages, through gates that will not relatch, and doors marked private, pursued by moors and watched by latent robbers, to hostile villages at the heads of fords, to dark chateaux where wind sobs in the pine trees and telephones ring, inviting trouble to a room lit by one weak bulb where our double sits writing and does not look up. Everything goes on, even for the poet. This is so crucial. Every, remember, Mary turns, all the Madonnas turn their, whatever their form, and remember, Mary takes different forms in different cultures. She turns her gentle face away. She's lost her son. She bears no rancor. No vengeance, no anger. She is with her son in his love. The rest of us go about our work. Um, including the poet, lit by one weak bulb, where our double sits writing and does not look up. So implicitly, it's a condemnation of his own work. That as a poet, even though he's writing about this, he still feels separate from it. He's one with it, writing about it. It's his double that that moment dissociates all of us from ourselves. We're in the world of Christ. How completely will we go to Christ? Good question. That while we are thus away, our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed, restoring the order we try to destroy, the rhythm we spoil out of spite. Thou's cloak. So, God, this is... With all of our efforts to be good, we're still fallen. 
there's still something going on amiss. Um, that while we thus, while we thus away our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed. The interesting contrast here is between the flesh and the spirit. That we are so much of the world that our body takes its own course. Because watch what happens here. Our own wrong flesh may work undisturbed, restoring the order we try to destroy, the rhythm we spoil out of spite. Vows close and open exactly. Our heart keeps punking. Everything we do in our body goes on mechanically, the way our bodies do. Vows close and open exactly. Glands secrete. Vessels contract and expand at the right moment. Essential fluids flow to renew exhausted cells, not knowing quite what has happened, but awed by death like all the creatures now watching this spot, like the hot looking down without blinking, the smug hens passing close by in their pecking order, the bug whose view is balked by the glass, or the deer who shyly from afar who shyly from afar peer through chinks in the forest. It's almost as if we become one with an animal world unaware of the significance of what just happened. Except they're looking. Hmm? Except they're looking and we're not. Except, Doc, say it again. Except the animals are looking and we're not. Yeah, but... We're resting. But are they seeing? So... Are they seen? It's it's a the ironies here are so biting that um, this is so like Eliot um, that um, this extraordinary event has taken place and so many of us go about our jobs not carrying the full weight of what just happened. So that's the knowns. The midday next week we'll do the. We'll do the part of the Vesters again. It's from the evening prayers, looking back on the day. Okay. Let me stop. Any questions bef before we take up Lewis's essay? Or no, our, nope. Before we take up our essay, our question. <clears throat> Pretty heavy poetry. You, boy. Tracy, I don't know what problems you're having. You've gotten all this literature behind. You should be knocking these people over. <laughs> I hope you know that I'm saying that too lightly. God, when I think about our world today, that you should be standing where you are, all I can do is pray for you. God. By the way, just along those lines, you know the essay we're going to read um, right now was written by C.S. Lewis, and it was not published in England. He could not get a pub. This is England. He could not get a publisher to publish it. <laughs> God, just, just amazes me. Just amazes me. Any questions about the poem? Before we look at Eliot's, I mean, sorry, Auden's, or Lewis's, I know this is too long, but I want to read it. I want to read it. No questions on Auden? I want to, I want to read this question. Um, it, it was one of the longest ones. I'm sorry for that. You know me. Thanks for your patience. 
I want to read it because there's too much in it, and it, it, it like the justice mercy theme, it deals so immediately with the question of art, with what all of us struggle with. I, I know it's a, um, it's got a sharp edge to it for Tracy because of where she's placed, but I want to, I want to read this question, all of it, even though, even though it's a little bit long because it's a serious question for me. We've been doing this for four or five years together. Um, and you, you know that often I've reflected on the nature of literature and why I think it's important. Um, but here we're stepping back from it to talk about one of the things all these works have in common. So let me try to pick up Fred's comment here. Francis, is he around? I really want him to hear this. Um, we've read a lot of literature and the, 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 um, the language, the setting, the characters have all been different. We've experienced, I want to put this as deeply as I can. We were in a Greek world not in English, even though we had to read in translation. We entered a Greek world through Homer. Not English, not Shakespeare, not American. We went back to a Greek world in Homer, and we discovered there's something universal about all of us. We went back to a Roman world with Virgil. Um, not Greek, not American, not modern. We went back to a Roman world, its language, its metaphors, its way of seeing the world. Um, we went back, we didn't read Beowulf, but we did some of Chaucer, so we went back to a medieval pre-modern world with Chaucer. We went back to a medieval Christian world. All of the um, people were on this pilgrimage. And we've gone um, up to a modern world in America with um, Melville and Hawthorne, so we've entered our culture. We left it for a while to go to um, Russia. So we've experienced a Russian world. So in response to Fred's question, you know, what are the underlying threads? What connects these works? Now, obviously there are thematic connections. We've been dealing with common themes running through all of them. Um, and I, th I think I can say that in some ways, all of them speak to something universal or they wouldn't have resonated with us. We, we hold on to them because each one of them, even if they come from a different culture and were originally written in another language, Russian, Greek, Roman, um, or Latin, they speak to our human condition, struggling with the same things, the gods, law, justice, mercy, injustice, evil, evil, working on men. This Job question, why does God allow these horrible things to happen if he's a good God? I don't think we've read a work that I've put on this list in which we haven't had an immediate experience of some awful, horrendous action. Um, people doing bad things, Claggart doing what he did to Billy, um, the devil with um, Yvonne, you know, we can go on and on, the murders killing um, Thomas Beckett, Ahab wanting to kill the whale out of vengeance. Um, we've, we've experienced every kind of horror and um, we've experienced s something going on in all of these works 
working to answer these awful things. Whether it was Melville dealing with Ahab or Hawthorne dealing with these self-righteous Christians. You know, we've been, these poets have, sh have showed us, and so this is one of the great themes, I can just name it, without any, with no reservations. Every one of these works has been written by a poet who saw that no matter how bad things were, some good was at work answering them. Yeah? Otherwise we wouldn't have the resolutions. We've talked about it. Every tragedy ends with a good. Even, even if it ends with death, let's say Veer having to, you know, look over Billy's execution. Every tragedy ends with a good because it answers an evil. It, it shows some goodness coming out of it. And it prepares the way for a new order. You know, Iago being caught, Claggart being felled, um, Turnus being killed. I mean, you know, go wherever we are, wherever we'll go. So one of the one of the things that we've seen tying all of these works together is this sense of I can't remember the phrase. Um, Siu bonum diffusium no bonum diffusium sued goodness is diffusive everywhere it's the latin that goodness is diffusive it's everywhere at work how can it not be if boethius is right if god is a good god even if he allows evil to protect our free will he's doing nothing if he isn't bringing goodness out of everything so no matter how stupid we are what bad things we do he's always working to bring goodness out of it so one of the things we've seen in, in every work we've read together is evil being answered. And we, we saw the reasoning behind that in Boethius' Consolation because he's the one who, who made it explicit. He made the argument, even if we'd only intuitively felt it in our works. So one of the things that's tied all of these works together is this sense that goodness is diffusive, it's pervasive, Every one of these poets has distinguished itself from lesser poets by dealing with evil and showing something's happening to bring a goodness out of it. Okay? That's one of our great, great things. Wouldn't you all agree? I think. So that's one. We've ta been talking about mercy and justice. Now I want to talk about another because this goes to the nature of literature itself. It's not a theme. It may be treated as a theme, but it's not. It's what is literature doing? Because one of the things all these works have in common is that they're works of literature. They're not philosophy. They're not science. They're not history. They're not biography. They're literature. They're poetry. And we've been seeing that poetry helps us to see the world, to know it better, to grasp something more clearly in our minds, but it also helps us to feel. It moves our heart to feel things, to help us feel things that we wouldn't feel without it. That's one of the things that it does. So in one sense, this is going directly to Fred's question, but it, it's, it's a little bit odd because it's not like we're picking up a theme of the work. We're actually looking at literature itself because the one thing all of these works have in common is that they're all 
they're all works of literature. Hold on. Um, they're all works of literature. Okay? So I want to read this question. It's long. I'm sorry for that. But I'd like a discussion on this because my real question to all of you, and I'm going to treat it as an open question, is you guys have been at this for a while. What is this meant for you? What is it meant for you? I don't know how to ask it any differently. How has it helped you? What has it done for you? Okay, here's the question. It's on our list. I want to be careful of turning the literature we've been reading into moral allegory. I try to avoid that even though when we discuss literature, abstract from it in order to express what we've experienced in terms of concepts or themes, that's exactly what we do. That is, I do not want to turn literature into moral. It's not a parable. Literature is not giving us moral lessons. It's not a catechism on Sunday. I'm not presenting it to you the way school teachers were on Sunday who were presenting parables about Christ. This is literature taking us to our world and very often where Christ isn't explicitly around anywhere. So I've avoided, I, I do not want to do that. Literature to me is not moral allegory. I don't want to reduce it to abstractions because to do that to me is to destroy it. That is not what literature gives us. It's not about ideas. We enter into an experience. We participate in it. We go back to our world, except we go back to it through these poets who are helping us to see and feel something we don't often in our ordinary day lives. One of the gifts of good poetry is that we can experience an actual firsthand, live it with the characters, not just moralize about it in concepts or reduce it to themes or ideas. The great sin of the morals who lives too often self-righteously in a world of black-white abstractions. We've seen, I hope, that literature offers us a different way of reading the world, standing in it, a special kind of knowledge. It's a knowledge as experience, um, and I'm claiming that it can lead to a kind of wisdom because it steers us clear of abstractions. It helps us to go back into the world to live it immediately to help get us out of our heads. This is a kind of wisdom the world longs for, I believe, but doesn't know very well. To continue this line for a second, we read poetry to deepen our sense of what I've sometimes referred to as the apophatic. Literature returns us to the concrete world, not through abstractions or concepts, but it does this while situating us in another place as well, in the story or poem or play, but outside of it too, in our own world. We are in two places at once, here and there, at the same time. It does what the Eucharist does, but without its sacramental efficacy. Remember Eliot's lines. Here the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. The paradox offered in these lines possesses within themselves their own resolution. That resolution is the fruit of Eliot's having taken each of the historical places and communities in which the quartets was rooted, all the historical figures, the circumstances which they were embroiled, the descriptions, empirical realities, all of them. He weaves them together with this strain of a work's great apophatic negations. Um, remember, the point where the dance is, although he cannot say where, the end that is the beginning, the point where you are and where you are not, the moment in and out of time, 
the place one kneels to pray, where the interaction of timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. He's always putting those contraries together. Here, now, in England, nowhere. All of these cataphatic and apophatic contraries are given a musical quality that's brought to rest in the very last word of the quartets, the one that ends all of them. And the fire and the rose are one. This is the one and the unity or resolution that it implies into which all things are resolved, in which all things will be made well. I'm trying, I'm not trying to make a defense of literature, I'm setting up a question. We've talked about the importance of using language, of telling stories as a way of detaching ourselves from a situation in order to deal with it more effectively. Odysseus cannot get home until he tells his story. Remember, there's no way Odysseus can restore order at home without those adventures. He's learning something. The last adventure he has is to tell stories of adventure. If you go into therapy, I mean, I would think, I'm not a therapist and I don't have any experiences in therapy, but I'm assuming that one of the most important things a therapist can do is get a patient to tell a story. Because by beginning to do it, the, the person becomes involved in his pain, his disorders, whatever they are. But at that moment of telling the story, he also gives himself a way of detaching himself from it. He can begin to see himself. Not afraid. I mean, think about it. His reason, his mind of reason, can begin to look at himself as somebody and still feel, empathize. The importance of telling stories through a period of therapy. Um, Odysseus cannot get home until he tells his stories and scary. Learns to see himself from a distance of, or from a stance of detachment, being present and outside himself simultaneously. In Carthage, Aeneas stands before Juno's temple in the panels of which are the stories of the Trojan War. You remember, he's looking at himself, performing these deeds. And he's no longer that man. How important is it to be involved in our experiences and be detached from them at the same time? Beckett has to speak about his possible motives before he can commit himself to his impending death. I suggested last week that one of the values of reading Othello is to become aware of the evil he never sees till it's too late. How important is it that we learn to see both the tragic and comic aspects of our lives in order to live more fully ourselves? Even possibly to face our end, the death we all face, better. How important is it that Billy, in his innocence, can't talk, can't reflect on himself, and so learn to see or understand how he deals with evil? You remember we talked about Billy can't speak faced with a threat. At the end, he's absolutely calm. He gives his blessing to Veer. God bless Captain Veer. I mean, I, my, you know my own reading. I think it's a communion that both of them share in that death. Billy's accepting his death. Veer has to pronounce it even though he doesn't want to. Both of them enter into a goodness that transcends them both. It's an extraordinary moment. It's a pain. It's a cross. And they both enter into it. We're allowed to participate in it and still stay outside of it while we're involved in it. We don't read literature to make it fit our beliefs or assumptions, 
but to return to the world of experience and look at it with fresh eyes, with less stubbornness, less pride, and powers of denial, to see things we don't often see in our daily preoccupations, to strengthen our powers of perception and empathy, but also to enter more fully into the mysteries of life. <clears throat> Consider the powers of literature to strengthen our efforts at reflection on our own will, on our own world, we learn to look at something outside of ourselves, but also in ourselves, our gifts and our weaknesses. So here's my question. What has literature meant for you guys? Um, in, in what way has it helped you to enter into our concrete lives? All of us have different stories. Every one of, every one of us lives a life that constitutes a story. You know, Marcy had a story, Bob had a story. Their stories are joined in some way. The two of them have a story now. Fred and Francis, Suzanne and me, Barbara, all of us. Um, Marcy, um, Tracy. What is, what is, how has literature, has literature helped to draw you more fully into life and detach you from life at the same time? And if so, how and why, in what ways? That's my question. So this doesn't go so much to themes as is what literature is doing. That's my question. And anybody, feel free. And if anybody wants to take a break and go get some wine to answer this question, <laughs> feel free. We've been doing this for five years together. I'm glad to step back with you guys for a... you want to start? Barbara, <laughs> come on. Hey, Bob. Yeah. I, I don't really understand your detach from life part of what you're asking. Um, I mean, everything as far as literature is, I, I mean, I don't look to literature to escape. If I want to do that, I'll watch some stupid movie or a football game or something, you know. Yeah. So I don't understand to detach from life because it just makes no sense to me. I don't understand why anybody would even want to do that. Anybody have an answer to that? By the, by the way, Mark, just, uh, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, I think it's a good question, but I want to be careful here. I myself would make a distinction between escape literature because I think most literature is escape literature. It, it functions to draw us out of a world and just offer us a, you know, a, a pleasure for a while. The I don't think of the literature that we've been reading as escape literature. I think of it as a literature that draws us more deeply into the world as we know it and offers us something besides a break or an escape. Well, so, I would agree. That's why I don't understand the detached yeah, from reality yeah. things. That's why I'm putting it. Anybody anybody have a Tracy, what's your response to him? Here goes to your question. Well, let me put it differently. Is I mean the 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 argument that I was making, the way I presented the question is that one of the things that literature does is draw us into a world and detach us at the same time. And Mark's raising a question about what I mean there. Can you, do you have anything to offer on that? 
hard to, it's abstract, so it's hard to put into words, I think. Um, but I guess, uh, I think it has something to do with putting yourself away and uh, something to do with Christ calling us out of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And I think this, the literature that we've been reading um, detaches us from that, from the world in that way. I think that's really good. Mark, one of the things that comes to my mind, I'm a little bit, I want to be careful here because you know I've, I've gotten on you a number of times when, you know, you'd come out of a work and you'd go that floozy or that, um, that, 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 that we're actually going to get this to C.S. Lewis tonight, so I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, of something going on here. But one of the things literature does, particularly because of the good poets, you know, good poets can take us into a work and help us to feel something about a woman, a man, a heroism, um, a cheat, a lie. By the way they present it to us, they can help us to feel something about something that ordinarily we might not feel. Our hearts are changed. I thought, I, I really thought Tracy's aunt, Tracy, I thought your answer was really good. That Can we ever, I mean, I mean, I've been presenting this problem all along. Can we ever enter into a work and see it on its own terms, put ourselves away, those are Tracy's words, and, like Christ, to enter that world on its own terms, not change it, not talk about somebody who's, you know, and describe somebody in terms that's not fair to that person, but exactly the way they're described in that work. That requires an effort to put ourselves away to learn to see what's there. And remember, Saint, one of the great premises of St. Thomas is, we can't know things if we don't learn to see what's there I, I hope your trust in me has strengthened some over the years, because the literature that I've been we've been doing together is not a cheap literature. I would I would not. In fact, let me well, let me put it in. If I gave you a piece of cheap literature for me, it would be to help you see the difference between a good piece of literature and a bad. We've been reading really good literature because one of my purposes has been to help you recover a tradition to help recover what's being lost to us so that we can learn to see things a little bit better because we've got a tradition behind us. So um, I think Tracy's answer is a, I mean, is a start. I think it's a really good answer that, that one of the things we have to do if we're to learn literature, to read literature well, is learn to put ourselves away to see what's there. If we can do that in literature, Tracy, this goes directly to your point, I would hope that we'd have a help in being able to do this in life. You know, that we don't, we don't look through the same eye. Here, I mean, we don't look through the same eyes anymore. And I'm saying this now to you because I, and particularly in light of it, my trust, Tracy, you can correct me, is my belief is that when you look in the world, when you look out in the world right now, I think I can say this to Fred and Francis, he, he's got his hand up, so... You don't look through your own eyes anymore. You look through your own eyes with Homer, Virgil, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, Faulkner. Your eyes are so much more deepened by what you've been given than your eyes 
then whatever depth you would have brought to your eyes before you picked this stuff up. The, your powers of vision have, have deepened so tremendously. Less egotistical. You just don't see through yourself anymore. You see through a larger world. Your world is deepened. Exactly as you said, I mean, to put yourselves away. Fred, go ahead. Did you have something? In response to your question, and, and for, for me personally, can you speak up a little? Can everybody hear him okay? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, you know, today in our world, there's so much going on in the media where they've already decided what the answer is, and they just want to give you the information you need to agree with them. Yep. And in, in the works that we have done, I think there is a very strong element of, and, and all of the different authors have kind of a different way of doing it, whether it's Hemingway's, you know, giving you the tip of the iceberg and forcing you to kind of dig down and figure out what the rest of it is to, um, you know, giving it, giving it to you all at once and you're trying to process all the data, but the one thing that's consistent in all of it is it's kind of encouraging you to think for yourself and wow. to, to figure things out based on information that's been presented to you in, in different ways. And to me, that is so important today that, you know, the media, you know, regardless of where you sit on the pendulum, the, the media is very biased about what they believe is right. And if all you do is just listen to what they have to say and go with the crowd, climb on the bandwagon, you're just going to go where they want you to go. Whereas if you take the time to, to invest in formulating your own opinion, which, you know, all of us are extraordinarily educated and capable of doing that, um, you may realize that either you agree with them or maybe you don't, but at least you've done the work. And it just strikes me that all of the artists that we've, we've worked with, whether it's the stories, the books, the short stories, the poems, there's a, there's a significant encouragement for you to do the work. And I think, I can't think of anything more important today for all of us than that. Yeah. I would just add to, yeah, it's a wonderful answer, that, that um, you've got a, a large, rich tradition helping you do what you're talking about, you know, to come to your own mind. F um, Fred, if I can for a sec, Don, I know you've got your hand up, but I, I, so just bear with me for a second, would you, for a second? Fred, what, so you've got this rich tradition helping you to, you know, to see things so that you're not just um, confined to, a, you know, whatever view the media has. I can't remember that exchange, but we've talked about it a couple of times when somebody said something in a classroom and you said that it was, that it made you realize that it was okay to, for you to be you, that reading Thomas, can you, do you recall that moment? Cause it, it sort of encapsulates, encapsulates what you're saying right now. Can you recall that moment? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I, I do vaguely. I <laughs> just, it's a, it's a while back, but I, I, th I think it's 
it's just an encouragement that it's okay to be different. It's it's okay for you to be. Do you, you remember know, what the circumstances were that led you to respond that way? Because I, I was, yeah. Do you remember? I'll, I'll ask my my fellow classmates if they can remember. I <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what it what it was, but um, you know the 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 element of. I, I think it goes back to the discussion that we had about trying to be the best you you can be, what whatever that is, and that it, it's okay if it's okay if you're not a saint, or it's it, you know it, it's okay you know if if you're not the best possible person that you could you could be. It's it's. It's really what what God is asking us to do is you don't have to be like somebody else. Right. Just be the best person that you can be based on what God gave you right. to work with. Right, right. We say good. Sorry, sorry. So I, I, I you know, I, I am never going to be a Saint Thomas or Aquinas or whatever, but maybe I don't have to be. Maybe I just have to be the best me. Right. You know, whatever that is, based on the talents that God gave me. Right, whatever you've given to be. I can't remember the context, but it seems to me it had something to do with St. Thomas, and it was one of those sharp exchanges where you said that that was a reason for you to feel okay, for you to be the best person you could be, not trying to be somebody else. I don't remember what it was, but anyway. Um, Don, did you have did you have something? Yeah. Um, I think uh, stories, uh, which later get translated into literature with the written word, I mean, the spoken story has been around since day one. Uh, primitive tribes and right. indigenous people, you know, they convey knowledge and uh, morality and uh, religion and all these things through story. In fact, Jesus' biggest way of teaching people was through the parables, right. which are stories. Right. And so we get... Uh, we can relate to characters and events that are occurring in the uh, in the stories. You know, we may have some similarities, maybe not exactly the same, but we can relate to the to the um, characters and the events that are happening to them. Yep. So it's an effective way. I mean, we could read a book on philosophy and talk about justice and mercy and ethics and this and that, but when you put it in a real life situation uh, that we can see and relate to, I think. The message gets across uh, easier, yeah. at least for me. Yeah. Jeannie. <laughs> you look like your oh, eyes. You're... Go ahead. I'll, I'll say something. Uh, I began to read when I was three years old. And my parents had a world book encyclopedia and the dictionary that went along with it. And I thought words were the most wonderful thing in the world because I could be, lived in a, we lived in a small house in an East Texas oil field. And I would sit up in a tree with all my books and I could go anywhere. Right. I went all over the world. Yeah, yeah. It's sitting there in East Texas. So literature has pretty much been my life. <laughs> Marcy, I, I, for as long as Suzanne and I have known you, I, or I don't know if I'm speaking for both of us, but I think it's almost impossible to see you not in a treehouse and everywhere at the same time. 
<laughs> in everything you do. Yes, um, and when we get to um, to law and justice, I'll explain how that works in Texas because I was part of it and I was the mercy person. Okay. And I'm not kidding. Okay. I'm speaking truthfully. Okay. I'll explain that to everybody. Um, where's that going to go? God. Um, Hmm? Somebody, Jeannie, were you, I had a kind of bless. Uh, I was, well, first of all, I'm, I'm very much like Marcy in that I've always, always loved to read, and that's oh, probably my very favorite name. thing to do in life. The blank yeah. Other than be the with my children blank. and my husband. <laughs> but um, I, I found that studying these works made it seems to me that they made me feel that I was drawn more into the whole humanity. Um, good, bad, you know, right, wrong and everything in between. Um, and it just made me feel more like a truly whole to, to read these works and talk. Yeah. Um, if, if I can here, this is a little bit abstract, but it, it, it just sums up a sort of principle here that's behind so much of what everybody's saying. I'm, I'm assuming most of you know the story of Helen Keller, that she was, mm-hmm. um, I think she was born with hearing and sight, but at an early age became deaf and dumb couldn't speak, couldn't hear, and um, she she became um, violently angry um, and expressed her violence and anger in lots of ways and was in some ways uncontrollable in her behavior. Her parents couldn't do anything with her and didn't do anything with her, but, and I don't remember the name of the woman who finally helped her out of her condition, but but what the woman did, in a sense, was open a door in a prison. And I'm not being metaphorical. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that literally. She was enclosed, imprisoned in a world of deafness and dumbness. She couldn't speak, couldn't hear. And the, the breakthrough for Helen Keller was with words. The, the friend, I think, I, I'm, it's been a long time, and my memory's not good in these things, but... I think the friend ran cold water over her hand and wrote on her hand so that she could feel the touch of it, cold. See, I think. Then ran, I may be getting these details wrong, you can check it, but, I, but the, I, you'll get the point here. That, and then hot, and wrote hot. That moment changed Keller's life. Because of the first, and it's a word, so it goes to what Marcy was saying a minute ago, and Jeannie, what you're saying, that that when a, when when we reach that point in our life, and you think about kids growing up, because they hear words all the time, but all of us reach a, a point in our lives when a word just doesn't refer to a thing, a tree, a squirrel, it refers to a concept, yeah. and holding that concept in our mind can relate us to a whole world of larger things. Yes. So without words, our, we have no way of really, I'm, we have no way of really fully participating in our world. I'm going to use the word communion, to enter a communion with it. That something hidden in ourselves 
begins to participate with something hidden in things. So it wasn't just cold and hot water anymore for Helen Keller. It opened up a world of concepts that, that language could relate her immediately to cold and hot water, but to concepts. So something more universal. So she had a so she so instead of being in locked up in a prison, defined ho almost wholly in terms of her senses, her anger, or feel, or touch, which she couldn't relate to, she had no way of talking about. Suddenly, having language um, gave her a way into a world. It was like a prison door opened, and from that point on, um, she did nothing but read and write. And you know, she became a powerful, inspirational speaker. And at the root of all of her talks was the importance of learning to use language be because of what it can do to help us get out of our own prisons. Remember in uh, Winter's Tale, in Winter's Tale, um, one of the motifs of that play is prisons. Hermione's put in a prison. Um, she's released. Um, you know, I mean, she goes, um, Leontes puts her in the tower. But there, there, are, there are passages in that play in, in which Shakespeare's talking about prison understanding that each of us can be confined to our own prisons by what we do. I just happened to be on the line on, on Google a couple of nights ago and came across an inspirational it was It had to do with the um, confirmation hearings on Barrett. And somehow I got to, I think it was Gowdy. It's one of the, I think one of the Republican senators, if I, but he was giving an inspirational speech to a, um, a fundamentals congregation and he was talking about how he, he said, I grew up with good parents. I had really good parents, nothing to be angry about, but I found myself angry at everything. <laughs> he said, anger is a prison. And he just kept repeating rhetorically, anger is a prison. This is a prison. This is a prison. Um, he had a good upbringing, he had good, but one day he just got angry. You know, it must have been one of those days where you look around you and you deal with the horrors of the world and all you can do is feel angry because there's so much wrong. But he said, anger is a prison, this is a prison, this is a prison. Um, and then he talked about ways of getting out of it. Um, so, um, words offer us a way of getting beyond our own world into the worlds of other people. So they enlarge our world. So, you know, to, to go at Fred said that we can make up our own mind. Yeah, we do make up our own minds, but it helps to have so many other minds behind us. Could we come to the decisions we do come to if we didn't have their help? Um, so once we locate ourselves in a tradition, it's much, we're in a much better position to make decisions because we can see more finely the differences between doing things this way or this way or feeling this way or this way. Take words away, we're in a dark, I've used this metaphor before, we're in a dark closet. We, we just don't see very well. Barbara, sorry, you go ahead. Sorry. Oh, um, when I started this, I started because literature to me wasn't that it said something, it was more uh, I enjoyed the rhythm of the words and the intelligence of the people who put them together and and that was it was like looking at art and and so that's how I started and so that was stage one and then the second stage is it occurred to me 
and I'm sure that you verbalized it, was that these literature pieces were written as a, a statement, a comment about what had happened in history and that like uh, the Reformation changes how people are from then on. And so I began to have a wider view and not just of what was written but what happened afterwards. And so although I missed a lot of this, a lot of the pieces of literature, it occurs to me now that my perspective, as small as it still is, is much wider than it used to be. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Yeah. You know that um, you know that one of the reasons for doing the lyric together in this work that we've done is that I'm um, trying to hold up a a work of literature that that helps make us all more conscious of a musical aspect. Um, Barbara talked about the rhythm. I believe that there's a musical center to all works of art, that there's a harmony and order. It just doesn't fly off into chaos. It's not incoherent. If, we're, if a work were incoherent, we wouldn't bother with it. Even I think of Jane Austen, for me, is one of the greatest examples. Um, because if you read her chapters, there's a beauty and an order to the sequence and a coherence. If you read modern literature, like Faulkner's Sound and Fury, that sequence gets disrupted because the world is violent, but you can put it back to order. You can see there's an order to things. So all works of literature assume a musical center, a harmony, an order. Boethius is good. So I'm glad for Barbara's use of the word rhythm because I think it's there and I'm, I'm sorry we don't use it more often. And I'm really glad for use of the word light because I can't, I myself, I can't think about Jane Austen without saying, if any of you have read her prose, you know you can't you can't read a page of her writing without feeling her intelligence. She's so perceptive. There's a, a beauty and an order to her writing that's extraordinary. And one of the words that I keep using is light. That you you can't read her sentences without feeling the light of a mind brightly shining on something. Um, we call it intelligence, you know, but but I think a, another word for it is light, and that light and harmony are essential to what we've been doing. It, it, it gives light to our mind. It, it increases the lights of our mind by which we see. Um, St. Augustine's word for it was illumination. I'm sorry we don't use that language anymore, um, but, but I, I think those are qualities of it. So Tracy, when you go out and meet this next audience of yourself, we want to hear about your defense. What's your <laughs> anybody else? Anybody else on um, Mark? I don't know if we answered your question. I really just think it's it's what I've been suggesting that in a work of literature, because we're using words, it's a medium. There's a form of mediation. We're not it, Suzanne and I are here together. We're just there's if we didn't speak, we'd still be here together. I'd see her. I could touch her, feel her, she could. In words, we're offered a form of mediation that takes us into something um, while keeping us detached at the same time. Eucharist does that the same way. We enter into Christ's life more fully, but we're still here. That's why I kept using the word apophatic, that we've got this strange experience of literature of being there and here. 
you know, immediately. Because it's not an idea. If you read philosophy, you're in your head, you're in an idea. In literature, we're in a created three-dimensional world. We enter into an action, but we're here in our bed, in our treehouse, your Marcy, and, you know, in our study, wherever we are. So literature is a strange thing. Let me, let me, because I want to be careful of the time. Anybody want to comment on the importance of the apophatic, that notion that we started using when we met Eliot and started dealing with his poetry, the, that the apophatic is a way of knowing by negation, um, by an absence. Anybody want to comment on that aspect of literature? Explain the word better. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear Marcy, but Suzanne's off in the chair laughing. Because here you are again with, um, Professor, explain what you mean by logos. Oh, yeah, well, I did that one, so tell me about this word. <laughs> More about that word. Fred, do you have a, do you want to, go ahead. Can't hear you. Still can't hear you. You're on mute. Let me try again. Yeah, got you, got you. Uh, got not you. only in religion, but in science, apophatic is a way you try to define something that is so obscure to you, you can't deal with it in positive terms in the sense like God is something. So <laughs> the next best approach you have is, well, what is, what is God not? Right. And you try to define something by determining what it isn't, right, as right. opposed to factual, what it is, right, apophatic, apophatic, yeah. And so when you when you come to something like trying to define God, where the quite frankly nobody knows anything specifically, yeah, factually, yeah. And Boethius, I think, is a classic example. Uh, lady philosophy took Boethius through this whole process, and more often than not, she used the negative as opposed to the positive to try to get Boethius to the point of understanding the ultimate concept in that book, which is nothing happens that God doesn't have a hand in. Yeah. That's a directive. Yeah. Marcy, another way of thinking about, I mean, adding to what Fred say. The, the part of the value is the apophatic is that it reminds us that there are things we don't know. And it holds, it, it's a way of affirming the value of that. Let me just give an example along Fred's lines. Um, by the way, this is the way St. Thomas begins the Summa. Because you have a volume now, you, if you were reading your beginning of it, you would... Yes, I have them all. Thank you. <laughs> if, Everyone um, else. Thomas begins... Be begins by describing what God is not as a way of trying to help us understand what God is. So, for right. example, let's say, God's not a body. He doesn't have a body. He's not limited in time. And right. by saying that, um, it makes us aware of what he isn't. He's not a body. He's not limited. Okay. So, the apophatic is, is what we call the, the way of negation. 
it, it's not meant to negate knowledge. As a matter of fact, it's meant to enhance its value because it makes us aware of those things we don't know. So the whole Socratic approach, in one sense, rests on the apophatic. You remember Socrates went around talking with all these people who claimed to have all these knowledge, all these people, I know exactly what this is, I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this. And he would begin to question them and make them aware that they didn't know. Um, they would get furious at him because in their pride they wanted to claim that they had all this knowledge. What he did was to show them that they didn't know and it was on the basis of that that they um, condemned him. Same thing with Christ. You know, I mean, think about Christ saying, in me you see the Father. Well, here's a human being who's this <coughs> idiot who's, God, this man who claims to be, oh, in fact, he, you know, when, he, when, he, um, when they lowered the cripple into the house and he said, which is easier to heal or forgive, the Jews were outraged because they knew only God for, only God for forgive. Here's this man. So in all mm -hmm. these instances, this man kept making these claims that he was a God. But he's right in front of them as a man. So the apophatic isn't just um, negative because it's dealing, it's approaching things through a, a way of negations. It's a way of enhancing knowledge by reminding us that there are things we don't know. And in a sense, it affirms our human nature because it, it humbles us that it's okay not to know because we're not God. To pretend that we're God and we have all the answers usually means we're in trouble. So the apophatic is a way of presenting things. So Eliot's, I mean, we've gone through his, you know, the, the four quartets a lot when he says, here's the dance and no, um, it's here and nowhere. To arrive at where you are, you must go for where you are not. Um, in order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by way of ignorance. And what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. You could go through any of the quartets, and you'll find Eliot lining up those apophatic statements. It's, it's always placing us in two places so that we're helped to stop thinking we know everything. And that's why one of the reasons I've, I keep you know, talking about the Eucharist, that when we take the Eucharist and we walk out of church, where are we? You know, we're on our way to the parking lot, but if we're taking the Eucharist with us, are we in God's kingdom? More, I'll do some more work on that. And I'll also tell you where I got some other words, because I went to church three times a week, and I had a note, notebook and a pencil, and if the pastor said some a word I didn't know, I wrote it down the way I, it sounded, and then when I got home, I looked it up, so I learned new words from my preacher three times a week. <laughs> Fabulous preacher. Okay, um, I'm going to turn to C.S. Lewis, unless anybody's got any more comments on this. Let me ask you before we do to go to Lewis. Can any of you think of apophatic moments, outside of Eliot, can any of you think of apophatic moments in any of our literature? You can work on that. About Faulkner. Hmm? About the Benji section in Faulkner. Wait, hold on. Can you hear Doc? I think. Like, wait, sorry. Did you hear? Can you, wait, can you? Did you hear Doc, Suzanne? 
I was thinking about the Benji section in Faulkner. Wait, Doug, can you hear her all right? No. Can you speak up, Doug? I was thinking about the, ben the Benji section in Faulkner. I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you all. If you want a guy, if you guys want to come in, just uh, unmute. But I'm gonna mute you all. Okay. Doc, did you hear? So go ahead. So it seems to me that we do a lot of putting things together because in the Benji section and Faulkner, there's a lot that's missing, and we have to understand what's actually going on by what's not there. Do you all hear? You remember the Benji section. If you remember the Benji section, we're, we're in these descriptions of what's going on between and Le Benji and Lester or somebody, but they're all incoherent because suddenly we're thrown back to a wedding party or drinking or a fight or, you know, infidelity or, um, and it all scrambled. But if you put, if you work with what Faulkner's doing, you can see that when you put it together, there's this amazing reason behind it all that's coherent, makes sense of it all. Can you think of any others in any of, any of the readings we've done that's a, an example of the apophatic? Fred, you think of anything? Well, just just the one I well, the one I mentioned. I I think we see that a lot in. Boethius' consolation of philosophy. When when Lady Philosophy is trying to get Boethius through his struggle, she uses some of the aliphatic in helping him to understand ultimately that you know God has a role in everything. Yeah. Don, go ahead. How about in the Scarlet Letter, where we don't know who the father of the child is? I mean, the congregation doesn't know. We don't know at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And we find out eventually, but at the beginning, it's unknown. Yeah. And when we f do find out, it just blows everything up. Um, Uh-oh, did did, if somebody did sharing, can you take it off? Because sometimes when somebody does a sharing, it just... It throws everything. I don't know what just happened, but if anybody just did something, can you undo it? Anybody else on the apophatic? I was thinking oh, of Old in the Sea. Hemingway, where you had the man and woman in the train station talking all around the abortion issue. Oh, wonderful. Is that Karen? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. Did anybody, did somebody do something? Something changed our screen here. Can anybody help us with something? I don't know what happened. Doesn't matter. Don, you're the culprit. <laughs> Me? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, I think that's a really good example. Um, the, the, whole, the whole, it's like the tip of the iceberg. We get this you know, the scene dealing with something and and all that it's about is hidden from us. We, we don't see and it just makes the importance of that one thing all the greater. So, anybody else? Any more? 
who's somebody, who's doing that? Somebody's somebody's taking control of the who's who's whose hand is that? Who's who's? I don't know. Any any other any other thoughts about the epiphanic? Does anybody have any suggestions about how to get rid of this stuff to return the way we were? I don't know what to do. Doesn't matter. Question. Yeah, let's, um, let's, oh, there we are. I'm back, yeah. There we are. Um, okay, let's go to Lewis, okay? Um, I'm not sure the best way to, you know from your reading of this that Lewis published or wanted to get this published in England and couldn't get it published because it seemed so at odds with English culture. But he's basically making the argument that um, that with the advent of science um, um, comes a new way of looking at the world and it's produced this um, con these conflicting ways of looking at the human person and it's taken away the notion of um, desert and replaced it with a notion of um, therapy and healing. And his argument is basically that um, in losing and giving up this notion of desert, of something owed or not owed, we've actually created, a, even though the people who present that argument say, this is more merciful and more humanitarian. Lewis is arguing that as a matter of fact, it's not, um, that it's more inhuman and um, not merciful at all, that it's more controlling and detrimental to our human nature. So um, let me just start with a question. I mean, does anybody have any questions, first of all, about his argument, what he's saying, so we can clear that up, and the second question is, if we can get that out of the way, what's your response to it? But let's take the first one. Do any of you have any questions about the argument that he's making, exactly what he's saying? I want to be clear in his argument before we start talking about it. Yeah, I got a question. Mark, is that talks, you? Go ahead. Yeah. When he, I mean, he talks about, I guess, des, desert? With desert. I, I don't get anything he's talking about that. Why did he choose that word? Because I don't know, I don't, I mean, it's desert. No, it's dessert. It's, dessert. it's not so desert. Dessert got, when you eat dessert, it's got two S's. No, no, Mark, it's not dessert, it's des, it's, wait, it's dessert. It's, it's not desert, it's, it's what's owed. What you deserve. Y'all are cracking me up, because I was going desert. <laughs> when I was reading your note, I thought, what is he talking about? And now I understand. Thank you. Well, let's 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 get clear. Carl, go ahead. Sorry. She said, you know, it's dessert, like just desserts. And I had to look it up. It's only used in the plural, and it's what is deserved. Right. If a person gets their just desserts, they right. get what's coming to them. What's coming to them. Yeah. yeah, it's what's warranted. What's warranted. What's deserved. I got it. It was poorly introduced to me, or else I just missed it. Yes, that's it. Then why didn't he use that word? 
Warranted? Well, the I mean the obvious answer to that is because fifty years ago, wait, this is really yeah. inter this is really interesting to hear this. Fifty years, this is really amazing. It's a really a telling opening here, because fifty years ago there would have been no question about that word. That's how far we've come. I'm I'm really serious. That word was in common parlance. You get what you deserve. No. Nobody, nobody would have had a question about what that meant. That's how how far away we are from looking at things that way. Anyway, does anybody have any questions along those lines? What, um, any, can anybody just um, summarize his argument? Yes, I can. Go ahead, Marcy. I've worked most of the day on this because um, what Lewis does is pretty much attack me from the beginning to the end of his writing in this. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Actually. I know, but what's his, not you, what's his argument, Marcy? What's his argument? Well, I will explain it. He wants to stay in the old terms. He doesn't want that he should get what he deserves, a criminal should. And he shouldn't have mercy because that's wrong for him. He needs to understand that he committed a wrong and he has to pay for that. Is, is that he is what... not for mercy in any form. Is that what Lewis yeah. is saying? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Marcia. Is that what Lewis is saying? That that that. Wait, I think he's saying the. Can anybody answer that? Is that what Lewis is saying? The he's he's not for humanitarians, which was what I was. And I'll explain it this way, and then you'll understand it. Wait, Marcy, I want to get to Lewis. I want to get to Lewis because I don't think that's what he's saying. First of all, Fred, go ahead. Do you have something? Uh, I, I, yeah. I, I guess I, I got something completely different from it that doesn't make it right. But to me, it's, it's, it's really a, a, a pretty good il illustration of the whole justice mercy discussion that we had. And I think what he's trying to bring out is that mercy without some element of justice is, is it, well, really, it's, it's, it's chaos, but it's chaos in the sense that you begin to get a, a very strong relativity involved in that point where, you know, you bring in experts or whatever it is, and it becomes distorted in a sense of trying to find true justice and where you know, the, the justice element of it is basically a crime was committed. What is the appropriate justice for that crime? And if you begin to get, but, you know, and I guess to me, abortion is a really good example of this. There's, there's a, a, a commandment that says thou shalt not kill. And if you if you take that to its final course, then that says killing babies is not the right thing to do, and and justice should be served if 
if if you have an, an abortion. And and let me just let me just put that in a sense that abortion is is a form of when used as a form of birth control, and try to get away from some of the things that are more obscure. And as you as you begin to look at the alternative, that is. Uh, the excuses that people use for why abortion is okay, then all of a sudden justice is no longer served. And what, what really is dominant is all of the, all of the relative discussions about why that's okay. And you get a very distorted version of justice when you let that happen. And I think what he was describing, and if you go back and look at the history of it is the humanitarian movement at the time that took place, that's kind of what was going on is that people were making arguments for uh, whether it's a cure for for the person who created that injustice or whether it was an application of you're trying to prevent somebody else from doing that injustice by virtue exactly. of the of the crime that you commit to that person and his argument I think it's compelling. It says, well, if that's all you're trying to do is you, if you're trying to prevent somebody else from committing the same crime, you can use an innocent person for that purpose. Yes. It doesn't have to be somebody that actually committed a crime. Yeah. If your only purpose for, for, for providing justice is to prevent somebody else from doing the same thing, it doesn't matter whether you pick a guilty person or an innocent person. If you can convince somebody else that that innocent person is guilty, then you've accomplished your objective. Yeah, let me. So I think he's really trying to, to distinguish the, the difference there. Yeah. Let me. I want to get really clear here because this is so important to our discussion. Lewis's um, Lewis is making a case for. Well, let me let me ask this question, and if it doesn't get answered, I'll come back to mine. Is Lewis making an argument taking away mercy? Is that the purpose of what he's doing? Is he is he is he making a defense? Is his argument in favor of justice a de- involve a denial of mercy or a taking away or a dim- diminution of mercy? To go to what Marcy said, is he is he against mercy? Is he taking that away? I just want to be clear before we go another step. No, I don't think so. It appears to me he has. Yeah, wait, Marcy. Though, let's see, Don. Go ahead. Let let hear the argument first. Don, go ahead. No, I think he talked a little bit about it about the uh, uh, 18th century, I guess, or 19th century. That uh, there were lots of laws that were really uh, maybe unjust or, or right, right. overzealous in their punishment, right, and that right. uh, there was a lot of reform made. So I think that's a little bit on the mercy side. Um, and at least that's something I got out of it, that there is some mercy in there. But I think as far as the cure and the um, the deterrence, I mean, punishment, in a sense, is a deterrence. The criminal, the murderer, or whatever, when he's in prison, he can't commit those crimes again uh, until you release him. Uh, and as far as curing him, that's very difficult to do. Um, <laughs> And he's really the a only one that can cure the criminal is the criminal himself. I mean, he has to undergo a transformation, and you know, maybe the imprisonment would uh, make him reflect on uh, what he did and uh, 
maybe resolve to not do it again when he gets out. You know, so I think built into the punishment, there can be some aspect of cure and deterrence. Right. Let me. Okay. Well, let me read this one sentence. Pure. Um, I mean, justice with. Uh, I mean, no justice, just mercy is enablement in my mind. That right. Right. Not letting the person uh, take responsibility for their action. Right. Uh, Marcy, okay. if you can hold off for a minute, because I, I, it's a question of understanding what Lewis is saying, so I want to clear up a confusion here. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to help you with. Well, <laughs> he says, thus when we cease to consider what the criminal deserves and consider only what will cure him or deter others, we have tacitly removed him from the smear, sphere of justice altogether instead of a person a subject of rights. We now have a mere object, a patient, a case. That's true. Oh, yeah. Well, go ahead, Marcy. I'm not... Okay, what? I'm sorry. Do you have a conclusion? or? I was saying that they... He says they need to have punishment and not a simple um, counseling He's talking about people who are trying to change others, usually in counseling. He mentions psychology, and that's what he means. If they will only mess up people, right, well, if you bring them into this, that you let me, Marcy, if you could, when if you quote a passage, could you quote the page if we're all using? But let me, if I can, let me take a minute here to put the question more bluntly. If I can put it this way, Lewis is saying that until modern times, we all shared a sense of justice and mercy. There's nowhere in the article is that Lewis um, is denying a need for mercy at all. As a matter of fact, if anything, the, the, the article is affirming the importance of mercy because he's beginning with the essential belief that it's... Um, we begin with a sense of justice of what's deserved, that what a person does deserves something, either a punishment or a reward, that what our, our, our actions mean something in that way. So he's holding up justice and mercy as a paradigm. That's the way we've done things forever, historically. A person gets what he deserves. So we used, we used to deal with matters of justice in terms of desert, what a person deserved. Okay. Yes. And the the mercy wait Marcy, wait the mercy is isn't obliterated it's not put away mercy's possible because we begin with a position of justice what he's saying is that that's no longer true now it's crucial to get this he says that our notion of justice and mercy both have been undermining undermined because they're replaced by a sense of cure. Um, and um, deterrence, so that we no longer look at people as human beings, we look at them as objects to be treated, to be cured, and used as deterrence. So the argument is basically that, um, that the moderns take the position that we're being far more humanitarian because we're not punishing people, we're putting them through a cure, and we use them as a, 
and may, may use them as a deterrent in that sense. And Lewis is saying that's not true, that as a matter of fact, by looking at human beings that way, we're being less humanitarian and we're taking away any need for mercy. Now, let me, let me try to elaborate just for a second. If so human, you just want them to be a, a case for the psychologist. To no, no, that's, Marcy, that's, Marcy, that's, Marcy, stop. That's the position he's arguing against. Hold on for a second if I can finish this. Mm -hmm. um, what he's saying is, in the modern world, because people are products of environment or disorders, they don't have wealth or money or environment or whatever it is that led to their disorders. They're a product of forces over which we have no control. They're no longer human beings, so we don't give them, we don't treat them according to desert what they earn or not. We treat them as things to be cured. So we put them in the hands of people in this therapeutic community who approach people now as things to be cured. And once we put them in their hands, we're putting them in the hands of experts to be able to do whatever they want according to their own lights, but we've lost a sense of something we all had yeah. in common before. Now, one more thing, and then I'll turn it back to you. I'm going to ask Suzanne to step in here for a second. When Adam, and, according to the biblical tradition, when Adam and Eve fell, and they were punished by the loss of paradise, did God treat them as objects to be cured, or was their punishment warranted? Did yes. they get what they deserved? Yes, that's what he says. So there's two notions now that Lewis is setting against each other, and he's claiming that one of them is, is described as being in, inhumanitarian. It's, it's not humane. And the other one, which presents itself as modern and being more humane, is in fact more inhuman because it reduces people to objects and puts them in the hands of people who may never cure them, who may not. That's correct. That's and and, and, it, and it, it changes the notion of a human being. If it's a cure, it's like a medicine. It's not a person yeah. any longer. It's, it's a person who's made up of determinisms, complexities, things that specialists are going to read in different ways. So I just want to be clear before before we start before we go to the question is it right or wrong or how you stand I want to be clear is everybody clear on his argument because we can't go farther if we're misunderstanding that if we're misunderstanding Lewis then we're not going to be able to talk about what he's saying does everybody understand the nature of his argument I think that uh, one thing is that there's a difference between the body and the spirit or the soul. The body is material. You got an appendicitis, you take out the appendix. Yes. You got a gallbladder problem, you take out the gallbladder. You got a broken leg, you fix that. Uh, but the soul and the spirit is something different. It's much, much more difficult. You just can't uh, operate on it like you can with uh, the human body. So I think that's a difference too. Yeah, yeah, good. You can't just apply. You know, we talk here, you've talked about science and the application of science. But basically, science is, you know, uh, information, laws, uh, whatever. Right. right. And it's right. the application of science that creates problems. We have right. nuclear uh, energy, 
we can use it for good or bad. We can build atomic bombs or we can generate electricity or use it in medicine to cure people of diseases and use it to uh, diagnose their problems. So, you know, uh, you can use psychology for good or bad. Um, it's helpful in, in many respects, but uh, you can't force a cure on people in this particular arena like yeah. you can with the body. Yeah, good done. Let me just read this line and because we'll, we're about out of time. On the first page toward the bottom, he says, after setting out the, the two theories, the traditional one that that um, that we've always looked at man in terms of justice and mercy, and we no longer look at him that way. We treat him exactly the way Don said, as an object. After setting that out and arguing against the people who say that the modern method is more humane, he says, my contention is that this doctrine, merciful though it appears, really means that each one of us, from the moment he breaks the law, is deprived of the rights of human being. Here's my question. Yeah. If a person is treated according to the second method, um, why does it undermine mercy? Because Lewis is not arguing against mercy. As a matter of fact, what he's doing is upholding a doctrine that protects it. He, he's saying mercy is essential, but it follows on justice. My question to you is, in, in what way does the modern theory, according to Lewis, undermine mercy? How does it take mercy out of play? Do you have an answer? It takes it out of play because if you're not guilty of anything, then there's no mercy. You have to be, you have to be guilty of something. So in place of mercy, what do you have? Cure. Cure. Can you speak up? So in place of mercy, what you have is the doctor says, you didn't really do anything wrong, you're just sick, so let's cure you. Yes, well, and no he's not for that. Marcy, Marcy, not, Marcy, 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 stop. Would you stop? When, when yes. somebody's talking, let, let them finish, please. Doc, go ahead. Would you? Just, just that if you... I if thought she was. Sorry, no, she's not. She's not. Um, if, if you're just sick, then you don't need mercy. So yes. if, you, if you take away any kind of justice, any kind of holding the person accountable, then you take away the possibility of mercy. There is no mercy if there's no justice. If there's no holding somebody accountable, there's no mercy. Can you relate that to, hold on Marcy, come back in a minute. Can you relate that to what Don just said a minute ago about body and spirit? Well, with the body, it's definitely that you're sick. It's not the body's fault that you get cancer or um, break a leg, um, and it's and it's more or less direct how you fix it. Um, you don't have to be guilty, so there's no mercy for the body. Um, you just try and cure it. With the soul, however, there is some responsibility. You're asked to be just. And if you're not, you're guilty of something. You'll then, be punished. Then there's retributive justice that's giving the person what's warranted. And then there's the possibility for saying there's mercy. What does mercy mean then? If I can just, sorry, if I can stay with, 
is mercy possible in a Christian world? And I mean, just to follow along Suzanne's thought, so if somebody's guilty of doing something, he's punished. Let's say he's put in jail, or if you're a child, you're put in timeout, or whatever, whatever the punishment. And Don was right on. I mean, Lewis addresses that. He says that there were some practices in the 18th, 19th century which had to be reformed because they were too cruel. But retributive justice means you've committed a crime, you're responsible for it, you have to pay. If you took $50, you have to give $50 back. That's just justice. My question is, because Lewis is trying to protect the element of mercy in our system, can there, can there be a mercy in a Christian world without God? Or, or let me change, how does God, how does what Christ did change our idea of mercy? Can, can you answer that, Doc? No. Can anybody pick that up? You know, Bob, the only thing I can think of, um, I mean, it, what you're talking about, it reminds me of Pope John Paul II, when he was shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. And went into the uh, where the prisoner was a, a year or so and there's a picture of him with this man. And he's, he's sitting there, and Pope John Paul forgives him. He didn't say, let him out of jail. Right, right. He said, he, he, uh, he uh, simply forgave him. Yeah. And, you know, and hopefully, I mean, I, I, ha I heard a report a few years ago that the man was let loose and brought back, you know, but in forgiving him, he's giving him his, you know, mercy and also the possibility for that man's transformation. Kathy, do this for a second. I, sorry, Marcy, I wanted to get back with you, but if we can just stay with this That's for a second. okay. It's time to quit at 8.30. I know. So I, I need to go to bed. You guys, Maybe anybody who asked to leave, go ahead. Next week. <laughs> Kathy, answer this question. When, because you, the guy, Pope did that a year or two after the crime. Right, right. And you were right on. They, they didn't release him. They didn't release the guy who tried to assassinate. Not at the time. What, no. Why was it important for both the man, the, the man who attempted assassination, and Pope John Paul, for John Paul to say that when it didn't affect the punishment because the guy was still in... So what? What? who cares? Why well, did he do it? What's the importance of it? Well, because... For both of those men. I think, for me, the example of... Because of forgiveness, of, of that kind of mercy, that kind of... Because that in, in affected John Paul's, Pope John Paul's life for all of his life. And so him going into the man and offering his forgiveness, um, his mercy, was a, a, an example of, of Christ. Uh, I mean, I, you know, of what I believe Christ did on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The man wasn't released at the time, I granted, but I think that, and you know, shows that um, there was uh, consequences to his actions, but still, I mean, it gave him, after being forgiven, it gave him the opportunity, the, the man who shot him, you know, to change, to transform for his life to be different yeah. than it was. And when I said he was released, I thought like a few years ago or something, they released him and then they said, oh, no, that was a mistake, and they put him back in jail. I don't know. That could have been yeah. something I misread. But I know at the time he was not released, that he was held accountable 
for his action. Yeah. And, um, and I, I mean, to me, I, I see mercy in, in John Paul's forgiveness of, of the act because it was devastating to, to him. Yeah. And, uh, and I also see hope because um, even though the man was held accountable, there was there's always the possibility for um, transformation. Yeah. I think, Donna, I want to get to you and then we'll stop, but just quickly, it seems to me one of the things that happened for both men, even though it didn't change the, it wasn't released, it didn't affect the punishment, right. it said he's still can is that in that act, John Paul made clear that he didn't hold any grudges against that man, he didn't resent him, he wasn't holding on to an anger, and your, and your word, he hoped. And insofar as he did that, it's hard to believe that that man wouldn't have shared those same things. Right. That, he, that he was looking at a man who had every reason to be angry or resent him or hold grudges, and he didn't. So it was possible in some ways for that man to see that there was something in Pope John that he might not have seen before and have hope. Right. That his own heart could have been quiet. I mean, we don't know, but at least Pope John... Reached out. Well, changed his own heart so that even though it didn't change the the nature of the punishment, um, it changed him. He didn't hold on to things. He didn't bear grudges. He did so that whatever he did with that man wouldn't show that he's still holding on to things. He, you know, he's still in that prison. Right. Um, Don, you go ahead because we're we're about so okay, sorry. Okay, not me. It's Mary. It's me, <laughs> Mary. Hi, Mary. Your worst nightmare is here. No, um, you're not my, you're, no, far from it. Come on. Here I am. Uh, the mercy that I see of, that I understand personally of Jesus is very apophatic in that it lives on the edge of total giving and total mercy. We are just in our infancy to understand the human brain what it's doing, how it works, the consciousness, all of that. We're still in our very infancy. So I think justice is a natural consequence of an action. And uh, it happens within society, has its own natural consequences, all the rest of it. Um, but what makes a person do what they do is between them and their creator and God in my mind, and God only knows. But the God that I've come to know through Jesus the Christ is one of mercy and love. The When I read the scriptures, I don't see him reforming anybody, but they he loves them. Whether it be the woman caught in adultery, or the, the unbelief of fishermen, or anyone else. And... Uh, Personally, I'd rather be in the hands of a humanitarian than a lot of good Christian people. That's my belief system from what I've learned in my 77 years of life. In the church, on the margins of the church, and I don't care, they can't throw me out. Okay? <laughs> let, me, let me just end with a, a couple of comments and a question, and we'll leave it and pick it up here again. We'll, we'll pick up this with this essay and go to Abolition of Man. Just a couple of questions. Um, one is in the mercy that Christ showed because obviously he was bringing a divine mercy I mean he was God he was bringing a divine mercy to all he did here 
Um, he sent the judges back under the law. He told the woman caught in adultery. He didn't. He didn't say go keep doing. He said um, go and sin no more. When he went to the cross, he was answering an injustice with a justice. The father that he came from, if you think about the Trinity, because this image of the Trinity has been so important for us all along, and I think today in our world we've lo absolutely lost it. We, we, we are part Aryan in our world, whether we know it or not. The Son was one with the Father and Spirit. They were all indwelling one with each other. The Son gave up his nature to take on our human nature. Is there anything, and, and the whole call of the Father in the Old Testament is to justice, repeatedly, everywhere. There's nothing he says that isn't in terms of justice. Is there anything that Christ did that would have abrogated or undermined the justice of the Father? They're one with each other. Christ, say, Christ said, these are his words, not mine, I came to fulfill the law. There's nothing he did that abrogated. The laws he you know, skirted were the 613 observances of the Jews, but they weren't his Father's laws. Everything he did fulfilled his Father's law, but he brought in a human form a mercy that was divine. So my question is with respect to this thing of justice, because going to a cross was his way of answering an injustice that we couldn't. So he didn't go around justice, he answered. He, he, his own words, I fulfilled it. Is there anything that he did when he scolded Peter, get behind me? He got angry at the, I mean, he chased the money changers out. He, didn't, he wasn't nice. He said, get out. When he talks about dealing with people who commit wrongs against us, who commit injury, he says, this is Christ. Talk to them. If they don't listen, take two or three. If they don't listen, take them to the church. If they don't listen, step away. Treat them as Pharisees or merchants. Or So a lot of Christ's actions were severe. He was a very comic figure. Is there anything that he did that wasn't in fulfillment of justice? Bringing to it a divine mercy. That's my question. I don't want to answer it tonight, but I'd like to leave it with everybody. The case that Lewis is making is that if we lose a sense of justice and mercy, we begin treating people like objects. I thought Don's summary of the difference between sciences and the spirit is really good. And remember that the spirit of mercy comes originally from God. Can we? Here's Portia's, here, here's Portia's words. God bless. Uh-oh, hold on. Here's Portia's words. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth at the gentle rain from... This is Portia upon the place beneath. It's twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Think about Catherine's example with Pope John in the cell. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power does then show like us gods when mercy seasons justice. The whole effort of what Christ did was bring a mercy to justice, not do away with it. Everything he did was to fulfill it. Lewis's argument is, if we lose this sense of justice, we lose a sense of mercy. It disconnects us from God. We're asked to bring justice to everything we do, but bring to it a mercy. I thought Catherine's example with John Paul going to the cell is a really good one, and Don's. So what happens if we replace this traditional notion with what, I mean, this is Dostoevsky and everything we've been reading, with these modern notions of curing and deterring? What does that do for the human being? And more importantly, what does it do 
to the human being's relationship with God. Is it more humane or less humane? And let me just leave that with you. We will pick up with this essay. What I would like to do is ask all of you to reread it because I have a feeling that it wasn't easy and it probably deserves a rereading, but that's the basic structure of it. So go back and reread it. Let's pick up with this essay when we meet next week and then start um, um, Abolition of Man. Okay? Because indirectly, it's not dealing explicitly with justice and mercy, but it's it, it's going to a, a very central issue of what's happened in the modern world to change the way we look at each other. Okay? Um, you are a good group. Um, these are tough questions we're dealing with. They go to really deep things. Um, um, if you all could keep each other, if we could all keep each other in our prayers, please. You guys stay safe. Um, and Tracy, I'd really be glad to get an email from you describing what's going on because it sounds like you've got some, and they're all dealing with art. I don't know that I can help or offer anything, but I'd be glad to have an ear for... Okay, you guys um, have a good week. We'll see you next week, okay? Bye. Thanks a million. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Boy.